Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at PinnacleHealth.org. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. When those who study and enjoy American history hear the name George S. Patton, They probably think right away about the flamboyant World War II general who led the famed 4th Armored Division of the U.S. Army in North Africa and Europe. But what many may not know is that Patton was the very first soldier assigned to the newly established Tank Corps in 1917, 100 years ago. Armored tanks and vehicles are just part of the theme of the uh, Army Heritage Days being held this weekend at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle. It will be both Saturday and Sunday. We're going to talk about tanks, Army Heritage Days, and a couple other topics as well with Jack Giblin, who is Director of Visitor and Education Services at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Mr. Giblin, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Also joining us, retired Colonel Alexander Coase, a former Army uh, Armor officer who will be operating a World War II era tank this weekend. Colonel Coase, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Jack, let's start with you. Uh, Describe Army Heritage Days. Well, Scott, Army Heritage Days is a timeline living history program that focuses on the history of the United States Army, particularly around the American soldier. Uh, that's the strength of our collection at AHEC, and it's the strength of what we do at Army Heritage Days. So we're going to really look at the American soldier from the very beginnings in the early to mid-18th century all the way up through current operations today. One of the unique aspects of Army Heritage Days is, you know, you can go to a museum, you can see a lot of artifacts, guns, uh, equipment. Uh, newspapers, so many things over the years behind glass in a museum. But one of the unique aspects of Army Heritage Days is it's hands-on. I mean, it's out in the open, it's outside, and you have people dressed in period uniforms, and you see the equipment. That's one of the things that is so unique about this. Yeah, we'll have uh, more than 400 reenactors and living historians uh, on our Army Heritage Trail, which is our Timeline Living History Trail. It's a 13-stop interactive trail that starts with a French and Indian War way station, uh, goes through Redoubt Number 10 from the Battle of Yorktown, a Vietnam Fire Support Base, all the way up to a current HESCO bastion that would have been in Iraq. Uh, and uh, you'll get to meet uh, really people from all walks of life that uh, were in the Army or that supported the Army uh, throughout those time periods. And this This is a family event, too. Absolutely. Uh, We have great events for the kids. For parents, we have uh, some top-notch lecturers. Uh, Dr. Robert Cameron is going to be there. He is the command historian of the Tank Corps, and uh, he's going to be talking about the history of the Tank Corps. Uh, We have a passport program for young children. Uh, They'll get a little passport. They'll get their passport stamped as they move through the different historical events on the trail, and they'll even get a little prize at the end. Tanks and armored military vehicles, as I mentioned, uh, one of the highlights, one of the themes this year. Why? Uh, well, it is the 100th anniversary of the first use of tanks in the American Exp- by the American Expeditionary Forces uh, in World War I. And uh, we wanted to recognize that. And, of course, it's also uh, America's entry into World War I this year. And so we're going to be recognizing that as well. Will we see tanks from the World War I era? Uh, we do have one in our collection that will be uh, on display uh, in our museum, but we do not have an operational World War I tank. We tried to get one this year. Unfortunately, we could not get one out there. But you will see just about everything from World War II all the way up through the Cold War period. Are there World War I era tanks that still operate, or are these recreations? Uh, no, there is actually a completely restored original one in Missoula, Montana. And then uh, Mr. Alan Coors, who is the head of the NRA, owns one, and it's down in uh, Virginia. And we've tried to get both of them, but they couldn't make it this year. Yeah, that's uh... 
uh, you know, we actually did uh, had a World War II event here uh, several years ago, and we were trying to get a tank, but uh, we were afraid that it was going to break the, the, the lawn. And uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, they're pretty heavy. They, they, yeah, they are, yeah, and they yeah. do make a bit of a mess. Yeah, so. they do make a bit of a mess. <laughs> so that's something we had to do. But uh, Colonel Coase, let me start with you. Let me go back to to, to you now. Um, you are is am I correct in referring to you as a tanker? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and very proud of it. Too. Okay. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. I mean, um, you know, one of the things that I've, I've learned over the years from those who have been in your position uh, or have served is that history is a big part of it, that you get to learn about the people who served before you. Is, is that something that you learn as, you, as, you know, as you're being trained to be a tanker? Oh, absolutely. I know in, in uh, whether it be uh, in basic training. Uh, when I first enlisted or went through the officer development program for basic course, advanced course, uh, our traditions and history were a big part of it. In fact, going back into the days of the horse cavalry, um, from which armor ultimately extended, um, and it's a very interesting history, too. You pointed out um, General Patton. Um, there's another notable figure uh, in the history of armor. Um, of course, armor tanks, as we know them today, uh, first appeared on the battlefield in, in 1916. Uh, in uh, the Battle of the Somme. And uh, as they stood up the American Expeditionary Forces, they felt that tanks would likewise be a critical component of that of that uh, force. And the individual that they actually selected to, to lay the groundwork for the American Tank Corps was Dwight Eisenhower, um, who did a lot in terms of the organization helping to stand up the industrial base to one day build the American copy of of what was the French tank, the FT-17. And he did such a good job that he was originally intended to go take those tanks to Europe, uh, but they thought he might be better served working here in the United States. And so the baton was passed to, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Patton, uh, who was the first commander of, of American armor on the battlefield. So just think about that when we're talking about history. Patton and Eisenhower, mm-hmm. uh, two of the leading figures, uh, commanders in, in World War II, that got their start in tanks. Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were really uh, laid the groundwork for the U.S. Tank Corps and, and the armor branch and cavalry branch that we know today. And, you know, there's a tie-in to central Pennsylvania here with Eisenhower. Not only that uh, he lived in Gettysburg, had a farm in Gettysburg, but one of the reasons that he chose Gettysburg was that there was tank training in Gettysburg, right? Yes, there was. And that's uh, another unique aspect to it. Uh, the initial armor training ground was Camp Colt in Gettysburg which used pieces of the Civil War battlefield uh, to conduct maneuvers and things of that sort. So, yeah, very interesting. And, and so another link to here, right here in central Pennsylvania. You know, I, I've always found that interesting, though, that uh, we talk about, uh, yeah, they, they tend to leave a mess, uh, that on the battlefield itself they actually trained with, with tanks. Today I don't see that happening. No. <laughs> no, not, not today. <laughs> okay, so we, we, I, I'm curious. You said uh, tanks first uh, introduced in 1916. Obviously, the United States did not get involved in World mm-hmm. War I until right. 1917. Yeah. The French had the first tank. How did it develop? You, you, you mentioned it came out of cavalry. In fact, you know something that you, when you do study history, you will see that many uh, armored divisions had the word cavalry, mm-hmm. even what though they were, you know, a, were tankers. A little, bit different, uh, a little bit different in form and function. Cavalry, uh, really, even from its inception as a horse cavalry up till today, their primary missions were reconnaissance and security. So it's a little bit different organization as opposed to a heavy armor division or armor unit um, whose mission is really to create breakthroughs in enemy lines such that the other forces can exploit those breakthroughs. Um, but the tank itself, and of course we trace the history back to the days of Leonardo da Vinci, which was b- basically an armored fighting compartment um, that could move soldiers across the battlefield and create breaches in enemy lines. Um, and in 1916, the, the British essentially embraced that very concept with their Mark I tanks. Uh, and it was quite a shock uh, to see them appear on the battlefield. Uh, a lot of catch-up ball was played by the different powers involved in, in uh, World War One. The French followed suit. They had a, a pretty impressive array of armor at the time. And in fact, the first American tanks were intended to be U.S.-produced copies of that French tank. Um, as the industrial base spun up, it didn't do spin up quite quickly enough to accommodate getting our 
U.S.-built tanks overseas. So the first of those committed to action uh, in September of 1918 under U.S. control were actually French tanks um, that, that were, in effect, lend-lease to the United States for that purpose. How would you describe a tank from the, the First World War? I mean, they, they obviously look different than what you see in yeah, World a couple, War II tank. And, and there, were, there were distinct differences in, in design, form, and function. Um, the British tank, the German f- tank that followed suit, the A7V, almost like land ships in that they were armored um, hulks, if you will, that had Sponson-mounted guns. Um, so the French tank was somewhat innovative, really, that it had a turret, only a two-man crew, but it, it was probably more close to what we view as a tank today. Hmm. Uh, so the Germans, I mean, and we're going to talk about World War II in just a moment, but what about the Germans in uh, World War One? They were actually relatively late to come to the game. Uh, only after the advent uh, of that British armor in the Somme did they realize, hey, this, this is something that we need to be prepared to address. So they played catch-up ball. Uh, they developed a couple of systems. The A7V uh, was probably their only tank of the war. Um, all of the powers in World War I did use armored capability in a number of different configurations. Uh, very early in the war, there were armored machine gun cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of those were built actually in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, surprisingly enough. The auto car, uh, which was considered a very reliable truck of the day, was used to uh, carry armor on its sides and put machine guns in to afford those crews some level of protection, and it kind of evolved from there. How much, uh, how much armor? I mean, how, th- how thick is a World War I tank? Uh, well, relatively thin uh, for our purposes today. Um, of course, there were no specific armor-defeating rounds back in World War I, so it was mainly small arms and shell fragmentation that they were concerned about. Obviously, as the, as the anti-armor technology started to evolve soon after the advent of armor, then, too, the armor had to be uh, enhanced, whether made thicker, uh, sloped, uh, to give it more uh, eff- the effect of thickness, uh, but that, too, evolved. How much speed? How fast would they go? Very slow. Uh, they were only going a few miles an hour in World War I. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, uh, that too evolved. Um, the Sherman that we crew now went about 35 miles an hour, but also in World War II, there were tank destroyers. A good example of that is the M18, uh, which would go 60 miles an hour. Uh, and today, an, M- an M1A2 can probably be very close to 70 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I mean, when we've seen, I, I think about some of those aerial shots, video shots of uh, Desert Storm, and uh, the tanks streaming across the desert. I mean, they looked like they had a pretty good pace right. to them. Yeah, and every armor design, even from back in the day of Leonardo da Vinci, is really a compromise of three factors: mobility, firepower, and protection. And where you gain in one of those areas, often you lose in another. More armor, heavier vehicle, uh, less navigable over terrain. Um, bigger gun, less round capacity. So to get to the best system, um, it, it is really an effort of compromise. Mm-hmm. So Jack, uh, for those who have visited uh, uh, the U.S. Army War Cup, excuse me, U.S. Army uh, Heritage and Education Center, uh, there are tanks on display all the time. Even if you've dri- just driven along I-81, right. you, see, you see the tanks, you see the choppers and that kind of thing. What's going to be different this weekend? Well, this weekend we're going to have some equipment that is uh, a little atypical. We're going to have a Stug three, which is a German motor-carried gun. Uh, it uh, actually was meant originally as an artillery piece for the German army, a mobile artillery piece, but really more functioned as a uh, almost like a tank destroyer in capacity as the Germans began to, to use them. It was one of the most produced pieces by the German army. Uh, we'll have one of those. We're going to have a Weasel. Uh, Weasel was a, a personnel carrier that was developed, sort of a, a quick mobility piece that we used for the winter campaigns. Uh, at least that was the concept uh, developed for use in Norway. Never got used that way, uh, but we ended up using them for a variety of different things. Is that, a half, is that a half track? It, it's not a half track. It's an open top, okay. uh, uh, basically full ar- side armored open top personnel carrier. Okay. Uh, so it's got full track as opposed to a track and wheel. Okay. And uh, it, it was used to transport troops in difficult conditions. Uh, after the war, used a lot in Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. Uh, but we will also have a half track and an auto car, actually, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that will be part of uh, the event as well. And uh, a 
as well as a variety of different kinds of equipment that supported these. Uh, uh, there's going to be a 25-foot uh, uh, semi-truck, basically, from World War II with its original trailer, a, a tank recovery vehicle, uh, and even some very rare... Uh, um, auto car and auto support components uh, that were used part of the Transportation Corps. I want to talk more about uh, U.S. Army Heritage uh, and Education Center's Army Heritage Days and uh, also more about armor and the infantry soldier coming up. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and nine nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at pinnaclehealth.org slash myheart. We're talking about Army Heritage Days being held at the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle Saturday and Sunday. Our guest today, Jack Giblin, Director of Visitor Education Services at AHAC, and retired Colonel Alexander Coase, a former armor officer who will be operating a World War II era tank this weekend. If you have a question or comment about history here, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You are also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. Jack, something else I want to talk about the, the event the, this weekend. Uh, as I said, uh, Army Heritage Days is a hands-on experience. Uh, you have, for the very first time, I understand, uh, a tank course. What is a tank course, and what would someone see if they see tanks on a course? Well, we've developed our own version of a, a tank training course. Uh, it's uh, your typical obstacle course, just like any soldier would run in infantry, with specific obstacles meant to replicate the service of the tank in the field. Uh, so there's going to be a pile of stone that they have to crest, like a stone ridge or a cliff. Uh, there's going to be uh, beach obstacles, uh, very typical that you would have seen on Omaha or Utah Beach that they'll have to navigate through. Uh, there's a mud pit uh, that they will have to cross, just like they were crossing or fording a river. And then there are logs, just, after, just like they would if they were crushing through a wood line. Uh, all of those things they'll have to navigate through successfully without throwing track or breaking down. And, and if they do that, then they've got some more work ahead of them. <laughs> So that's a possibility. That is absolutely a possibility. Uh, that can happen with any armored vehicle. Uh, there are a lot of complicated moving parts on an armored vehicle. Uh, that's why they have a multi-man crew and they have equipment on board to deal with that. Yeah. Colonel, what do you do in a case like that? I mean, other than uh, throw out a few expletives, it's not like changing a wagon wheel. Uh, no. No, it isn't. And it's a little more involved. And yes, there are ex expletives involved, but uh, the, the crews uh, are, are trained to, to handle those things. I mean, there's several levels of maintenance. Certainly at the operator level, we're, we're comfortable doing what we need to do, but hope, hope we can avoid that. Now, let me ask this, and because I'm sure there are a lot of people wondering, will the public actually be able to get inside a tank? Uh, they will be able to get up and look at some of the different tanks and some of the different vehicles. As far as inside, most likely no. Uh, but we will have equipment there that is part of our displays, such as our Bradley Fighting Vehicle. Uh, there will be a striker from the PA National Guard there, and they will be able to get inside that material. Uh, but but they definitely will be able to see the outside displays. Uh, many of our reenactors and soldiers are going to have specialized displays that cover everything from paratroopers to you name it in World War II. Okay. We have uh, a caller now, Walter from Plymouth, Massachusetts, and he says he knows you personally, uh, Jack, and uh, has, a, has a question or comment. Walter, you're on the air. Well, good to, good to talk. Thanks for taking the call. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, just say hello to Jack from FNI 250 and uh, leave it at that. But my, my question is really for Colonel Coase on the use of French tanks in World War One. You were commenting on the fact that the AEF, of course, didn't have the capacity to bring our American tanks into the theater of operations. And as you probably know, the U.S. Army Air Service had the same problem using French aircraft. What, To what extent, in your opinion, did the, the use of French tanks serving with the French in any way influenced the development of tank tactics? You know, I think it was it was purely evolutionary in in, um, in many respects. Uh, obviously, it was new to us. Uh, 
Um, and really, I, I would have to say that the evolution of tank tactics during World War One was really reactionary. Um, from from 1916 through the end of the war in 1918, um, really everybody uh, was devising the ways to employ and then counter armor. Um, uh, the French, even up and through the beginning of World War II, had some of the best armored systems. Um, and really, I think in their case, the downfall was that they didn't use use them effectively to exploit their capabilities. Uh, even in the beginning of World War II, they continued to commit them piecemeal. Uh, and again, a lot of that um, had an effect on our uh, armor and anti-armor doctrine, which really came to life in, in the early 20s. Uh, and, and we, too, then in World War II, had to modify that a bit uh, to, to exploit those capabilities. Well, Walter, I'm glad you called in all the way from Massachusetts. Thank you very much for your, for your call. All right, so let's move ahead a little bit to to World War II. And, Colonel, you're going to be in a World War II-era tank. A mm -hmm. Sherman? Yes, it's an M4A3 E8, commonly okay. referred to as the EZ-8. Okay. When we think, when I say we, meaning, and that's kind of a, a blanket statement, many people, when they think about World War II and they think about tank warfare, the first thing they think of is the panzers, the mm -hmm. German panzers. First of all, I think it's probably because it's a cool-sounding name. Mm -hmm. But they were also, they were very deadly. They were very effective. Right. Why doesn't uh, the American uh, Sherman get as much attention? And was the Sherman on a level playing field with the Panzer? Well, it, it, it really depends. Um, for most of what the Germans fielded in World War II, the answer is yes. Um, the, the tank was really designed to go up against the main German medium tank of World War II, which was the Panzer III. Uh, and it was a very effective adversary against the Panzer III and Panzer IV, even to its, its later, uh, later versions. Uh, a lot of the stigma comes from um, the advent of the Panther tank and specifically the Tiger tank on the battlefield. What a lot of people don't realize, however, is that there were really very relatively few numbers of those. Uh, the dreaded Tiger that everybody feared, uh, there were only just over 1,600 of those produced by the Germans uh, in World War II. The Panther, uh, which came out pretty much in response to the Soviet T-34, uh, just over 6,500 of those. In comparison, there were over 45,700 Sherman tanks alone produced by the United States, and they were used by every one of the Allied powers, uh, to include the, uh, the British and the Soviets, who uh, were very complementary. Um, and as I said earlier, again, any armor design is a compromise of those three factors, mobility, firepower, and protection. Um, the Sherman was notoriously reliable. Uh, it was hamstrung a little bit only because of, of early U.S. armor doctrine. And the doctrine was that the tank wasn't specifically designed to take on other tanks. The tank destroyer was designed to do that. Uh, the tank was designed to make those breakthroughs in the line that the infantry could then follow through and exploit. Um, but war being what it is, it doesn't always support the doctrine that you've emplaced to fight it. So they've had to make some adjustments, but the tank, uh, again, um, th there is a lot of, of data available that shows that it was a very, very capable adversary. The tank is often maligned, um, but in, the numbers show different. Uh, the Panther is, is much bigger, isn't it? It depends on, on the version. The Tiger okay. was a much bigger tank, much, much heavier armored, but it was not very reliable. Uh, and there were some distinct advantages the Sherman had uh, over the Tiger, an example of that. You could traverse a Sherman turret 360 degrees in 15 seconds. On a good day, uh, you, it would take almost a minute to traverse the really? Tiger turret. That's a big difference when you're being system. shot at. And, yeah. you know. um, the, uh, the Sherman had some other innovations. It actually had a stabilized main gun, stabilized in the vertical plane, so that as you traverse terrain, that gun can track, at least in that vertical plane. Um, again, famously reliable, uh, very simple to operate, uh, very maneuverable. Some of the disadvantages that did have it wasn't certainly wasn't uh, as well armored as a tiger or as a panther. Um, the biggest advantage that the tiger had was it, that, without a doubt, it it had the finest tank gun in the world at that time, which was the 88, and that gave that tiger uh, something we call standoff range. In other words, they're enabled to engage us 
effectively at further ranges and we can engage them. Uh -huh. So that was the biggest advantage. So it really was a truly an artillery piece then on wheels. Well, on pretty tracks. much. I yeah. mean, yeah, on tracks. But yeah. it, and and again, um, it it was not very well served in terms of maneuverability and reliability. Uh, and again, we've had had some advantages in terms of our optics. Um, th but again, on uh, like a sergeant major friend of mine is. Uh, is fond of saying, he said, what's was the best tank in the world? And the answer is the one that you can walk away from. <laughs> uh, there are so many variables that go into tank-on-tank -tank engagements um, that to simply lay out data doesn't necessarily do the discussion service. It's just like a sport team. You can get a, a sports pundit to lay out a whole bunch of data about who's going to win a particular baseball game or whatever. Well, the outcome doesn't always work out that way, and there's a lot of other variables that go into it. Yeah, it's not a fault on paper, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a call from Sue in Millersburg, I should say. Sue, you're on the air. Yes. Um, I'm originally from Berwick, Pennsylvania. I live here in central Pennsylvania. I'm a veteran. And I was wondering if you were going to have the Stewie tank at your celebration, and could you tell me what its purpose was? Okay. One thing that I did learn at a war museum in Stonestown, Pennsylvania, um, was that Berwick, Pennsylvania, was on Hitler's list for bombing, I suppose, due to this tank. Yeah, the, the Stewart tank, uh, the home of the Stewart tank is, is Berwick, Pennsylvania. Um, and the Stewart was a light tank. Uh, the Sherman was a medium tank. Uh, in the armored divisions of the day, the, the most common armored divisions of the day, there was typically a mix of medium and light tanks. Um, and in fact, in each one of the tank battalions, typically one of the companies would have been a light tank company. Um, light tanks uh, would have been more employed for reconnaissance and security missions, try to, to find the enemy. Um, but Berwick was the home of the Stewart tank, which was uh, our light tank of the war. Um, they eventually evolved, and after World War II, they went to something called a main battle tank and started to eliminate the light and heavy designations. But what, what she said, uh, you, have you heard that, that actually that was one of the targets uh, for the Germans if they had infiltrated the United States? Yeah, I'm. I'm not aware of that I'm offhand. Uh, I do know they. The production there was enormous, and mm -hmm. of course, Hitler's targets, particularly were in Europe, were any places that equipment manufacturing yeah. was going on. Yeah. So, if if he did cross the ocean, yes, that probably is a a potential target. I think she also mentioned, uh, and we just found this out, that evidently the town owns a, a Stuart tank that they are have restored, and mm -hmm. we just found out about this. We would have invited them; they're welcome to come still, but uh, we only found out about it just a few days ago. So. Mm -hmm. You can get that thing down to I-81. <laughs> yeah. Well, they evidently have their own tanks transporter from what well, I found good, as well. good, good. Yeah. Only 17 tons. They can move that one pretty Yeah, good. exactly, exactly. Well, one of the big questions uh, I'm sure that many of our listeners have, because very few of us have ever, ever experienced it, being inside a tank, the sights, the smells... You know how? You know I've heard people say, well, I, I couldn't do that. I'd be claustrophobic. What is it like inside a tank? You know, it's um, it, it is really um, almost like a family inside that thing. It is it the crew uh, interacts, uh, works, lives, and fights together. So it's really a unique perspective. Um, surprisingly enough, going through basic training, um, you would think some people might be inclined to be claustrophobic or whatever. But I never saw any of instance of that where somebody said I can't take this and I, and I don't know if it was just um, the threat of a drill sergeant uh, over you or whatever it was but we never experienced that um, and surprisingly enough when people get inside it, it's the, the typical response we get is it's a little bigger in here than I expected um, so really I mean that 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 is a little bit surprising because yeah. it's I mean it seems like okay when you've had to squeeze down through the, the, the turret and you know mm -hmm. get into it just seems like uh, it, it wouldn't there wouldn't be a lot of space no that's it they're actually at least certainly in the Sherman that we cruise surprisingly roomy uh, now I will say that I've had an opportunity to get into some of the latest versions of the m1a2 um, that are now chock so full of uh, technology that they they seem a little claustrophobic to me, but the, the, those that I served on uh, was never really an issue for me, at least, or any of the guys that I served with. Were, were you in combat? 
No, not no. Okay, no. I was wondering what it, it is like it being inside a mm -hmm. tank when uh, you're actually a target. Yeah, that's uh, well, it, it's clearly something that um, you know. That too, though, another of those things in in the heat of an engagement, whether it be a, a training environment, or whatever, you really don't think about it. Everybody in that crew is, is busy uh, with their particular positions. Uh, and it almost becomes like a um, uh, an immediate action or reaction drill. Yeah. Uh, so you don't necessarily think about it. I would imagine that uh, today's tanks in particular, that uh, they're, they're so technical, that uh, there's so much technology involved, computers, uh, compared to a Sherman tank from, from mm -hmm. World War II. Right. I mean, the tank that, the tank that I started on was the M48A5, and, and in many respects, it really wasn't that different than, than the Sherman that I'm... Uh, that I crew today. Um, those today, however, uh, for the reasons you alluded to, the technology, the situational awareness systems that are in those are, are decidedly different. We have uh, an email here from Mark who asks, the U.S. Armed Forces were segregated during World War I and World War II. The Red Ball Express was the famed truck convoy system that supplied Allied forces with munitions, fuel, food, and medical supplies. It was called a colored contingent. It was so successful that General Eisenhower applied the success as the basis to develop the current Eisenhower interstate system. Please speak on the importance of supply. Jack, is this something you want to address? Well, logistics and supply is is the backbone of the Army. I mean, there's no way the Army can move, fight, do anything without logistical support. And so uh, we, we will actually have a very large amount of supply support uh, materials on display this weekend. Uh, everything from uh, GMC two-and-a-half ton, uh, what we call the deuce-and-a-half uh, trucks, uh, all the way up through, as I said, a, a full-blown, uh, basically a tractor-trailer, most people, but most public would understand. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, Probably the most interesting uh, aspect of supply and support occurs during the Vietnam War, and of course we'll have one of our Vietnam gun trucks there. Uh, the gun trucks uh, during Vietnam, they ended up doing what we call today hillbilly armor. Uh, they up-armored themselves and put guns on the trucks in order to support convoy operations in the jungle and highland environments due to the fact that they didn't have the heavy armor support they needed when they moved equipment back and forth. And they became very famous for it. Uh, and we'll actually have two original Vietnam vets there who ran gun trucks and, and who currently run one of the ones we'll have on display. I had a question here from a listener as well. Uh, how tanks are used in today's warfare? The war on terrorism. I mean, it's definitely a, def a different kind of warfare mm -hmm. that uh, it's not like we have, we've said this many times over the years, it's not like we have, uh, you know, uh, an enemy that's all dressed in the same uniforms and have similar weapons as we do. It's fought very differently. Is there a role for tanks? Are tanks used in the war on terrorism? They, early on, um, there was. Uh, there was a role. Uh, and probably more of a conventional role. Uh, they are used, but on a very limited basis, just because of the nature of the conflict. Uh, there are instances where they, uh, you know, route security, those kinds of things. But in terms of conventional, um, you know, war on terrorism stuff, not specifically. The vehicles today um, they, that they need in, in a terrorism aspect, particularly when you're fighting in towns, they need what we call a high-mobility vehicle. And so the Bradley fighting vehicle and the striker particularly play a, a much greater role than the tank does in that kind of operation. Mm -hmm. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Army Heritage Days, Saturday and Sunday hours? 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. both days. Okay. And we'll have events going all day long. And there is food available, And too. there is. We'll have 10 different food trucks there, and uh, plus our own cafe from the Army Heritage Center will have a, a variety of things. And uh, uh, just come on out, enjoy the day, and uh, we hope to see as many people as we can there. Th those food trucks, they're not armor, are they? Uh, they are not armor, no. You should do that, you know. <laughs> I, I think that's uh, for the future. You should have at least one armor uh, food truck. Uh, Jack Giblin's Director of Visitor and Education Services with the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, retired Colonel Alexander. Alexander Coase, a former Army uh, armor officer who will be operating a World War II era tank this weekend. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Welcome back to Smart Talk. The Ku Klux Klan is coming to town is not something most people want to hear. But that's the case this weekend in southern Lancaster County. LNP has reported that the invitation-only gathering of the East Coast Knights of the True Invisible Empire chapter of the Klan is scheduled in or near Quarryville. It also has been reported that a cross-burning is to take place. Is this unusual for Pennsylvania? How prevalent are hate groups in Pennsylvania. Joining us, Josh Bartash, who is an investigator with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. Mr. Bartash, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thank you for having me on. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so let me just start with those those two questions I kind of ask rhetorically there. How uh, usual or how normal, how unusual is it to have a gathering of a group like the Klan here in Pennsylvania? Well, this is the beginning of the picnic season, and it's our understanding that this is a private event being held on private property. And these do happen in Pennsylvania periodically and throughout the country. And it's different than, let's say, a public event being held on a uh, courthouse steps or at a library or in a public park. Those events are very specifically intended to be PR, to show themselves to be law, uh, law-abiding citizens, in contrast to often counter-protesters, also to intimidate the public. Whereas these kinds of events generally are more about building group identity. They're often family-oriented, kind of like a picnic with a cross-burning at the end. (laughs) You know, I kind of have to laugh at that a little bit because of the irony. But, yeah, the cross-burning part of it, I mean, let's face it, there is some... Very, very serious symbolism in that. And, uh, you know, something that the Klan has terrorized people over the years. So even though it may be a picnic, to end it with a cross burning is pretty serious. Oh, absolutely. Uh, The Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission does monitor these kinds of what we call tension situations. Whenever the community becomes aware or when we become aware or through our partners in the interagency task force, we do track these types of events. We coordinate with law enforcement, local leaders, uh, churches, church groups, and others within the task force to try to combat the negative effect it has on these communities. We do this through education programming, coordinating with law enforcement. In the event that people do become aware of any unlawful acts, we do encourage them to report those to law enforcement. But in this type of situation, it's more a matter of keeping an eye on things and then, of course, countering a lot of their rhetoric through uh, counter events and there will be some in uh, with FNM college there'll be some also occurring within the churches in uh, Lancaster County you know there's I don't know some debate if you will and you know I, or maybe a difference of opinion is the way to put it uh, about bringing attention to events like this this the way it's been reported, is an invitation only. It is not uh, the rally, as you described, on the steps of, of the courthouse and trying to recruit that kind of thing. Uh, so there are some people say, well, why even bring attention to it? That is a legitimate concern. It's a concern that I've always had. But in this particular situation, it, normally these kinds of events fly below the radar. But because they advertised or they posted about this on the largest white supremacist hate site in the United States, Watchdog groups became aware of it, and the general public, by by proxy, also became aware. And at that point, we do need to address it. And if it's not something that the public is generally concerned about, we will keep track of that information and work with law enforcement and our partner agencies. But when it becomes public, like it has as a result of this posting on the website, we have no choice but to work with the public to resolve some of their concerns. So when you say address it, I mean, you kind of describe, but when you, what do you mean specifically when you say address it? Well, if it's not a criminal or unlawful act, we do monitor and keep track for statistical purposes. But for the most part, the way we react is working with our partner agencies. When the community feels that they're uncomfortable about bigotry coming into their neighborhood, we want to make sure that counter events are held. Uh, to show that the overall community does not share these bigoted values. Now, from what I understand, and again, this is uh, I'm getting most of my information from LNP that uh, actually had a reporter uh, talk to someone who wouldn't identify himself w- with this chapter. Uh, the I want to get this right. The East Coast Knights of the True Invisible Empire chapter. From what I understand and what was reported, uh, they are not based in Pennsylvania, correct? 
That is correct. Uh, they actually do boast membership in Pennsylvania, but the groups that we're dealing with appear to be coming out of Maryland. And as I mentioned, there are some chapter members in the area, and there are some smaller Klan-affiliated groups in Pennsylvania. But for the most part, the Klan is not one of the larger hate groups that are currently active in the state. Well, let's talk about that. You know, you know, there are there have been times over the last twenty years or so where many people and many organizations have said that the the Klan's time has passed as a white supremacist group. That they're not as you know, on the, the public radar as much as some other white supremacist or other hate groups. Is that accurate? Well, it's accurate to say that they definitely boast much fewer numbers. Since their demise, I, I don't want to call it a demise because that implies something different. The monolithic singular organization, the Ku Klux Klan, that's gone with the help of civil rights legislations, criminal actions, the help of organizations like Southern Poverty Law Centers through civil action. The Klan is now fractured. Most of them, actually, that used to belong to the Klan have been absorbed by other organizations that are much larger, like National Alliance, World Church of the Creator, uh, as well as uh, Aryan Nations. But they, we did see uh, throughout the country small pockets of individuals calling themselves Klan, starting their own little groups in, throughout the country, Pennsylvania included. Now, as time has gone by since the 80s and 90s, many of those smaller clan groups have started to get absorbed into some larger groups like the American Knights, or in this case, the Eastern Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. But in reality, once again, they represent the minority. I think that in many cases, they've moved away from some of the other larger groups because of religious or ideological differences, even though they may share some of their same goals, attitudes, and bigoted uh, rhetoric. In reality, they do often, uh, there are often faith-based organizations, and if their religious philosophies don't correspond, they'll, they'll often form their own groups. There are also a lot of uh, cults of personalities associated with these groups, and that kind of infighting between strong personalities also helps fracture them. Well, let's talk about, uh, you know, it's a, it's a hate group. Who do they hate? I mean, it used to be that, uh, you know, when we thought of uh, the Klan, it was mostly uh, blacks, uh, Jews uh, as well. But what about today? Well, yes, they, they still are addressing those same concerns. They're still focused on bigotry against people of color, Jewish people. Uh, for a long time, very specifically, Catholics were also included in this group. But there's also been uh, a movement on a much smaller level to start including some groups, like Catholics. So if one particular group of Klansmen decides that the Catholics are a problem and they want to exclude them, and another group doesn't, they're not going to necessarily play nice with one another. Hmm. But what about, like, immigrants, for example? Well, that's a hot button right now. Um, the issues that have been brought up since the elections unfortunately has normalized a lot of bigoted rhetoric that these groups are actually very happy about. And unfortunately, we are seeing a lot more geared uh, bigotry and uh, hate rhetoric geared against the uh, immigrant population. Uh, once again, that normalization is always a concern. The flyers that have been coming out through the Klan now are more focused on uh, the Muslim and Arab population, also more focused on Hispanic populations. Once again, Picking up on the uh, the terminology and focus that was brought up during the most recent election season. Now, I, I know, Josh, that uh, you used to be with the Anti-Defamation League. Um, you know, right after the election, it was well publicized. In fact, we uh, featured it here in our program where there are a number of Jewish uh, cemeteries, synagogues, temples that uh, were targeted by vandals. I haven't heard a whole lot about that lately. Has that died down somewhat? Sort of. Uh, we are still dealing with tension situations and issues of bigotry uh, throughout the state. But yes and no. In reality, once again, these things come and go. They come in waves. Uh, right now, once again, after the election season, we have seen an escalation of all sorts of bigoted incidents, not just necessarily geared toward the Jewish community or, let's say, the Hispanic population or the uh, Muslim American population. Across the board, we've seen a number of incidents have increased. But certain groups are definitely being more focused on at this time. Do we know why? Well, I'd have to say 
uh, to speculation, of course. But I, I do have to say, looking at what's been going on in terms of the, the rhetoric from the media and the rhetoric from certain legislators or elected officials, that there is this normalization, this idea that somehow it's okay and all right to marginalize, exclude, and demean other groups. Mm. Uh, so, and when you say that we have seen an uptick since uh, the election, are, are you uh, talking about Pennsylvania, too? That is correct, yes. We're very specifically talking about what we call tension situations. Tension situations aren't necessarily criminal or unlawful acts. They're just situations where an individual feels that they have seen or experienced some form of bigotry. And we do encourage the public to communicate that to their local Human Relations Commission or the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, as those, that information is very important for statistical analysis and to address some of those issues in the public forum. But for the most part, what we're looking at and what we're focused on is also dealing with those criminal and unlawful acts. And we have seen an increase in very specifically the unlawful acts. We encourage the public to communicate with law enforcement if they see uh, criminal acts, but if they believe that someone's civil rights or their civil rights were violated in the employment forum, uh, in public, the public forum, education, public housing, we do encourage you to communicate with your local Human Relations Commission or with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. You know, maybe it's a good idea to uh, explain exactly what the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission does and those local Human Relations Commissions that, uh, that you speak of. In addition to tracking those tension situations in the community, dealing with bigotry, uh, we also coordinate with a number of partners in what we call the interagency task force. That would be law enforcement, government officials, as well as, once again, those, those leaders in the community. Uh, but in addition to that, the bulk of our operations are really focused on the day-to-day -day problems that people deal with. Uh, bigotry in the workplace, bigotry in housing and discrimination in housing, education. And we have seen, as I mentioned, an increase in uh, incidents in schools where individual students or groups of people are being targeted by other students. And that's something that we have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Once again, that's the bulk of our operations is investigating those kinds of claims. Let's go back to uh, hate groups, if you will. I, I, I remember you were on the program like two years ago as I was preparing for this, and I looked at my uh, uh, my, my background at that time. And at the no, this was two years ago, and it was in May of, uh, of, of 2015. At that time, there were 35 hate groups identified in Pennsylvania. Has that number fluctuated at all? Well, at this point, the Southern Poverty Law Center estimates approximately 40 distinct groups in Pennsylvania. It's important to keep in mind, though, that it's almost impossible to determine the actual numbers of members for each of these groups, so they can sometimes be a group of one or a group of two. So it's something to keep in mind. Also, these groups are disparate in terms of their philosophies. They range in everything from white supremacy and the more traditional what we consider um, white supremacist organizations like Klan and National Alliance, to what we call uh, the, uh, those that dis uh, express bigotry toward the LBG LBGTQ community, uh, as well as other communities. And they don't always share the same philosophies, and they don't necessarily play nice with one another, as mentioned earlier. So it's something to keep in mind. And the bulk of the issues that we, as the Human Relations Commission, deal with aren't from hate groups. The bulk of the problems we're dealing with is the regular average person in our society who unfortunately feels as I mentioned earlier, perhaps emboldened to behave poorly toward their fellow uh, employee or student, etc. You know, one of the ways that uh, people are emboldened today is through the use of social media. I mean, it's very easy for many people to go online and say some things online that they probably wouldn't have the courage or wouldn't do face-to-face -face with another person or, you know, may end up in a violent situation. Um, so what about the role of, of, of uh, social media and what can be done about it? Well, we don't want to violate anyone's First Amendment rights, first and foremost, but we, as uh, uh, the Human Relations Commission, are focused on stamping out bigotry throughout the Commonwealth. It's part of our mandate under the Human Relations Act. So part of that would be not just the outreach to the community and working with our partner organizations, but through education. We have a very large educational component that's part of our program. In addition to going into academic institutions, we also go into the public forum and, and offer diversity education. Uh, information about how the law is applied, both civil rights in Pennsylvania, the Human Relations Act, as well as federal legislation like Title VII, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Fair Housing Act, and other related pieces of, of federal legislation that we enforce. So from our perspective, the 
only way to really combat this is through education, informing the public as to what their rights are, and of course trying to illustrate that this is a pluralistic society and that we all have rights and any discrimination against any one individual or group is discrimination against all. But, you know, getting back to the social media aspect of it, uh, I mean, you can't violate uh, people's First Amendment rights. People can say almost anything they want uh, online uh, or in a telephone conversation or in writing, that kind of thing. Uh, But when you have groups that are recruiting, I mean, unless they're recruiting to break the law, there's not a whole lot you can do, correct? That is correct, other than track, monitor, and keep this information for statistical purposes and for educational purposes. We have to make a clear distinction between protected speech and unlawful speech. Unlawful speech would be terroristic threats. That's a criminal matter, and you need to notify law enforcement if there's been a terroristic threat. But uh, in reality, the bulk of what's been appearing on the Internet isn't criminal, very specifically it falls within the guidelines under the civil right uh, under the first amendment uh, therefore all that we really can do is track keep aware and make sure we educate the public to counter a lot of this hate speech you know i want to get back to because we only have about 90 seconds or so i want to get back to this um, gathering and like again i i haven't called it a rally because we don't know really what it is of of uh, this clan chapter this week in in quarryville you know, I, I led into this, my introduction, say no town wants to hear the Ku Klux Klan is coming to, to town. Uh, does this, necess- this doesn't necessarily mean that there are more racist or there are more ha- people full of hate in a, in a certain area. I guess my question is, how do they choose where they're going to meet? Well, in this particular case, it was my understanding that the individual in Pennsylvania who wants to belong to the Eastern Knights has invited them to go onto his property or their property. So in this particular case, it's an individual. It's not necessarily the community, and that individual is not necessarily representative of the community. So it's something to keep in mind here uh, that this particular incident in Pennsylvania might not actually be Pennsylvanians. In fact, there could be very few Pennsylvanians in attendance, with the exception of the residents of the property. The bulk of them could be from out of state. Hmm. Josh Bartash is an investigator with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. Josh, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, you know, that's something, a conversation we don't hear every day, and uh, it's probably a good thing that we don't hear that kind of conversation every day, but it is good uh, information to know. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, Pennsylvania Treasurer Joe Torsella, newly elected and has been in office for a few months now, will be joining us uh, tomorrow to talk about uh, the state's investments and maybe how the state can get better return on its investments. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality.